Welcome to a new episode of Full Stack Cast. In this podcast, we are going to take a closer look at the humans behind Full Stack Fest, our ever-growing roster of amazing speakers. Their talks inspire us by widening our perspective and deepening our knowledge. But behind each one's well-known technical expertise, there's an often lesser-known, well-rounded human with a wide range of interests and a unique life path. Fullstack Fest is an inspiring conference about software. It's happening in the first week of September in Barcelona, and it's organized by Codegram, who also produce and sponsor this podcast. I'm your host, Chus, and today's guest is Angie Jones. Angie is a renowned engineer who's worked in test automation for over 15 years at companies such as IBM and Twitter. She's also a tireless inventor with 25 patents granted in the US and China. So yeah, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's a it's a real honor having you here. We haven't met in real life yet, uh, but we're going to meet in September in Barcelona. Yes, thank you so much. I'm so excited about the conference. You're very well known uh, when it comes to test automation. And that's a, that's a quite a unique uh, niche. I don't know that many people who specialized in test automation, maybe because a lot of developers think of it as an, kind of an afterthought. Or it's like, oh, yeah, we need to test. Yeah, of course. <laughs> or maybe we'll do some manual tests. It's okay for this time. Just do the launch and maybe after we can wor worry about automation, mm -hmm. right? And as I understand, you've been doing this. You, you did this at Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. You worked exclusively on test automation on Twitter, or did you do? Did you have different roles? Exclusively test automation. I've done test automation pretty much my entire career, so that's been about 15 years. There was two years where I did uh, regular development, and uh, test automation is definitely my <laughs> cup of tea. That's where I belong. Wow. Um, it's 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 actually you know very similar to development. I'm writing code all day, but I feel like in test automation, I had like a bigger scope and view of the product. So when I worked in development, I would get a sign like, oh, develop this one feature or develop this one little widget or something like that. And um, I found myself in a tunnel vision a lot, which is not good. Mm, yeah, not good. <laughs> um, yeah, I admire developers that are able to, you know, keep on top of everything that's going on in the product, I, I just wasn't there. Um, but in test automation, I am able to do that. I am able to like test uh, a scenario from end to end where I get to see like all of the different features and things like that. So I'm writing um, code and architecting solutions. And I just felt like I was able to flex my programming and development and architecture muscles much more in a test automation role. Interesting. And, and it somehow, I imagine that that sits somewhere in between product and development because you have to basically test scenarios, but you have to understand what's expected of the product because I, I bet you run into a lot of undefined behavior, like what should we do here? Is this fine? Is this not fine? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and no one can answer that question. Maybe no one has thought of it before. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like you have to talk with a lot of different people. So my scope would span like multiple rows of people. For example, like if I'm looking at a scenario, I might go ask the developer, like, 
is this how it's supposed to work in a development? Like, I don't know. I only worked on this <laughs> yeah. certain feature. That's all I know. And so you go talk to another developer and then you end up talking to the business analysts and the testers. And it, and it took all of these people to kind of understand what it should do. And you, this one person now have this big picture view of the app. Yeah, that's actually quite quite interesting. It's it's a view that a developer almost never gets to to have, and a lot of them, honestly, I think because of the culture, maybe mm -hmm. it feels like um, people kind of even choose to be isolated in, in a specific role, and they say, no, no, I just you know I just work here, you know, I just <laughs> developed this, I was told to do this, that's it. I don't care if it's right or not. I just did it. <laughs> Well, I got to feel that pain a bit when I was in a development. I mean, it's easy for us to point fingers at the developers yeah. <laughs> as testers and say, oh, all you care about is your one little <laughs> stupid feature. And, you know, it's a bigger problem here. But when I was in the development role, it was really difficult and challenging. Like you had all of this stuff that you needed to do in this small amount of time. And so you really just did not have the time um, to do all of that, like all of the testing that needed to be done. Like, you know, you could do some unit testing of your feature and, you know, maybe play around with it a bit in the UI, but the thorough testing of it, and then don't, don't talk about automating the test of it. Hmm. That's like a whole nother job. And so you just really, I think we, we are kind of hard on developers when we expect them to do all of this stuff, you know, and, and it's not just doing it, but staying on top of your craft. Like test automation is a craft in and of itself. Like I'm always studying and exploring and learning new techniques. And I have to follow like a whole bunch of other thought leaders in this space to learn from them. Can you imagine doing all of that and staying on top of like, your front-end development or your back-end development stuff as well. It's a lot. Yeah, that seems impossible. Right. <laughs> yeah. Also, the testing space has evolved a lot. A lot of people are still stuck with, they think testing automation, they think, ah, just Selenium. Mm -hmm. And maybe they even think, oh, I don't want that. I tried it 15 years ago and I didn't like it. Yeah, it's definitely come a long way. Um, Selenium WebDriver is still king, but I do see like a lot of developers are like, eh, I don't like it. There's some new kids on the block that are definitely making waves like Cypress. Developers seem to love Cypress and actually want to help write some automation. <laughs> so <laughs> that's good. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of progress made in this space. A lot of cool tools. We're seeing AI tools make a wave in the space as well. So it's definitely getting better. Um, so I'm also very interested, how, how did you get into programming in the first place? Because uh, usually, you know, everyone has their own story. And So I went, went I, I studied it in university. So I'm a computer science hmm. graduate. I have a bachelor's and a master's in computer science. But in going to college, like I, I wasn't exposed to computer programmers growing up. I didn't really even realize that that was a space. So I went to college not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, hmm. like so many other people. Yeah. And um, so I, I majored in business at first, actually. I figured that that was a good field for me to figure out what I wanted to do later on. Like it would cover me, you know. And um, hmm. I, was, I, I started off my freshman year in a business major. And my father, uh, he recognized back then, like, listen, tech is an emerging space. You need to know at least how to 
use the computer <laughs> um, for whatever job you're going to be in, right? You talk about like 15 years ago, this was before we had things like Twitter and, you know, uh, Facebook and stuff. So um, he, he saw this as an emergent space, which I'm so thankful for. So I enrolled in a C++ programming class. Wow. I know, but what did I know? I didn't know that this was like <laughs> yeah, yeah. something, some big leap, you know, <laughs> I didn't know that. So I, I enrolled in this course and um, I actually loved it. Like I, I fell in love with it and I did really well. And the professor was like, what? You're a business major. <laughs> like, no, this is where you belong. Wow. And uh, he was right. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed it way more than any of my other classes. And so I ended up switching my major and yep, graduated with a, a bachelor's and then went on to even do my master's in computer science. So that's where I got exposed to programming. Um, I imagine from the C++ world, there wasn't really necessarily a, a testing automation culture around it, right? right. I'm, not, I'm not sure. No, there wasn't. Uh, I didn't know what test automation was either. So my first job out of uh, college was uh, at IBM. Oh. They hired me to do a development job. And, you know, they when you hire people out of college, you start recruiting them like in the spring, but then they don't end up starting until the summer. So by the time I started, it was months later. Um, and so the team had done a rework. And so they no longer, that team was no longer there. So now they needed to find somewhere to put me. And um, they said, hey, we have this test automation role. And I had no idea what that was. All I know is I wanted to write code. So I was like, mm. do I get the right code? And they were like, yes. Okay, cool. So I did that job for uh, a couple of years. And that was in Java, um, which I learned in college. And back then, Java was like the new cool kid on the block. Mm. And so a lot of the developers there, they were just now starting to learn Java. And so I'd already learned it in college and gotten Certified. This was back when Sun still owned Java. And so oh. I was Sun certified in Java. So I came in like, and they were like, oh, wow, okay, she, she might can help us out a bit. And so I would help like some of the developers there um, who were switching to Java. So it was pretty cool. So in a way, they, they already had kind of this testing automation culture and you, you went there and there you developed mm -hmm. as a testing uh, automation engineer. Exactly. So there already you found that you, you loved the testing automation side of things. Right. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. But I still, you know what, I still had this notion um, in my head about like the hierarchy of programming hmm. and in my mind doing development was better than doing testing, than doing test automation. And a lot of times we see in business cultures where, you know, the testers are viewed as second-class citizens. And I can't say that anyone treated me like that, but that was still, you know, just something, a notion that you would hear about, just something in the back of your mind. And so I kept pushing to go into development because I felt like that was leveling up from where I was. Yeah. But like I told you, I went into development and I, I didn't like it. <laughs> I felt, I felt like, wow, I'm not even doing as much as I was doing in uh, the test automation role. So 
after a couple of years, I went back to test automation. Yeah, that's interesting when you mentioned because I've seen it in a in a company I used to work at. There was a separate QA team that did some development, but there was a lot of manual testing in that team specifically. And basically, the culture around that was like, if you're a junior developer, you're just starting, you go in that team. Mm. You don't get to develop the product, which is the good stuff. You know what I mean? So the same culture was there. It's interesting because that was only mm-hmm. like four years ago. I wonder like... What have we learned? You know, like testing is is really important. <laughs> I know it's so silly. And it's it's to be honest, having done both, the test automation is really difficult, you know? Like, um, I would I would almost argue I've seen other people like the um the project lead of Selenium WebDriver who's said before, like, you put your best developers on test automation, right? Yeah. Because it is really, really challenging to do. And we see a lot of test automation projects fail because of that mindset that, oh, you put your junior folks here or your people who are just now learning how to code, let them figure it out. But that's totally not the right way to go about this, especially with test automation now having such an important role in like our DevOps processes, right? So Hmm. you are using this to gate your builds and basically, are we going to deploy or not? Depends on what those tests say. So if those tests are giving you false positives, you could easily ship some bug into production. Or if they're giving you false negatives, you're holding up a deployment based on what these tests said and they aren't reliable. So we see a lot of teams start losing faith and trust in these tests when they have such an important role in our development process. Oh my God, this is so relatable. I remember <laughs> I've been exactly there on the false uh, on the false negative side of thing because that's what happens a lot. Tests start getting flaky, and then mm-hmm. oh, let's just maybe not test this because we know it works. <laughs> And we want to deploy, right? So let's just remove it. Right. That's true that sometimes then, you know, this hero comes and saves a day and fixes the leaky test and everyone is like, wow, (laughs) thank you so much. Thank you. Exactly. (laughs) Because think about it. You've been on some teams where you have like these junior people or people who are just now starting to code and you have them try to create this entire new software development project, which is what test automation is. You have them try to create this thing from scratch. It's falling apart. And then you say, oh, devs, can you all look at it? And they try to look at it. They can't make sense of it. They don't really know how to fix it. And so it's really important that we respect this as a craft. And uh, that's why people like me come in to try and make sure that we do this properly. Also, knowing how to test something is kind of a whole other problem. Right. Don't even get me started. (laughs) I look at um, I like to look at code reviews as well Mm. because I like to see uh, what's been covered as unit tests Mm. because it doesn't make sense um, for me to test everything at the UI level if I feel like there's been enough coverage at the unit test level. Right. Yeah. And so I might look at some of the things and I Sometimes I look at it and I'm like, what? This isn't a test. Like, are you kidding me here? Like, like <laughs> this is this is horrible. This is not a test. And and you find that it really is a different mindset between like developers and testing. The developers are, you know, they're building something, they're trying to create something, whereas the testers are really trying to find the flaws and expose them. So it's a different mindset that 
and and as an automation developer, you have to have like both of those mindsets. You have to be able to develop code, but then take a step back and be able to analyze um, the 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 problem spaces and look for the bugs. And that's hard to do in like your own code. Yeah, actually, you you brought up something that is also very relatable, which is the in a way the cost of of tests of different layers of tests. Mm -hmm. In in my experience, uh, I find I do like to consider the cost of unit tests versus integration tests versus system tests and all these because they have different costs and you have to have different amounts of them. In a way, I think of it as a budget. But I've seen a lot of developers that at some point they decide, oh, let's just do system tests for everything. Because if it works, you know it works. It just takes a lot longer to run. But if we test ex everything in the system like this, we know it will work. So mm -hmm. basically they pay a lot for safety or the certainty that it works. <laughs> a lot. Every build, right? And I don't know how yeah. you go about uh, this budgeting thing or is it a concept that you use? Yeah, I cheat the system. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I have a, a blog post on my site, AngieJones.tech, that's called Blurring the Lines of the Automation Pyramid. And what I do with that is, let's say a given scenario, let's let's take an e-commerce scenario, for example. So you want to basically test that you can update the quantity of, the, of a product in your mm. shopping cart, okay? So if you think about that scenario and how you would go about testing that, if you did that on the UI, you would... First go and you would search for this product and then you would have like these lists of search results come back. Hmm. You need to then look through those results and find the right one that you're looking for. Click on it. Then maybe you're taken to a product page on there. You click the add to cart button and then from there you go to the cart and then finally you're able to do what you wanted to do, which was test the quantity yeah. increase. So what I do is I cheat this. I don't have to do ev all of that stuff on the UI. Like uh, skip the whole search part. Why do I need to search? Most of these products probably have some unique URL that has the product mm -hmm. ID in it. You know, maybe I can just go right to that page and then add to the cart or better yet. How about I skip that whole thing and maybe do like the service layer and I just call a web service call that adds the product to the cart. And so my UI part only goes mm. right to the cart page and then does the test that I need to do. So I've skipped a lot of that UI part that's uh, that's going to be brittle and prone to error and failure. And I go right to what I need to test. And so people ask me, well, well what if search is broken and you're going to miss it? No, I can add other tests for search if hmm. I need to specifically test search. But why would I include that search piece in a update in a cart test, for example? If search is broken, now my test that is supposed to only be testing that we can update something from the cart is now blocked because search is not working. Like, that's silly. Why would we want this test blocked and not running because search is broken, you know? Yeah. So you have your test for search. You don't have to repeat that stuff over and over in every test. It's what I call noise. You've seen a lot of times mm. where your bill will fail. You'll have 50 failures. Yes. And you're like, oh, my God, what did I do? I didn't even, <laughs> oh I barely made a change, right? And so you check all of the tests and all of them are saying the same exact thing. That's because this stuff is repeated in all of these tests. Why do you need 50 tests to tell you that you broke something? One test would have been good enough has a bit more expo explanative power in a way because 
Mm-hmm. Like what happened in my case a lot is that when something breaks and there's 50 tests that depend on it, mm-hmm. uh, when I run a test, I feel like either it's going to be all green or there's going to be 150 failures. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrified of that. <laughs> it's like every time you open your gas to, I don't know, to cook something, right. it might work or it might explode the whole building. <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, so, if, oh, I mean, I'll, I'll show this podcast to a lot of people that I know. And, and, <laughs> and please listen to this. <laughs> we need to be more like surgical with tests. Right, exactly correct. So you mentioned something about AI before, and I have no idea what AI testing is. I've never thought about testing AI or machine learning models or anything, but I guess there's a testing culture that, that is developing around it. So. Sure. So everybody's talking about how AI can help us with testing. So we're seeing a lot of tools pop up. I actually work for a company that utilizes machine learning to assist in visual validation Mm. of uh, websites and mobile apps. So, um, for example, like just making sure like the look and feel is is okay on the website. Um, A lot of companies get this (laughs) wrong. Um, And that's because when you're doing your test automation, your test automation is basically verifying that you know, the elements are there, you can click them, this thing happens, et cetera, et cetera, right? But if any of that gets screwed up visually, your test won't catch that because the element is still there. It doesn't matter that Mm. maybe it's invisible or it's all the way (laughs) off the page and to the left. Like your test wouldn't catch that because all it cared about is, is that element in the DOM? Yeah. Yep, click it, right? So, uh my company uses AI to visually test. It doesn't do like a pixel to pixel comparison, but uses AI to mm. catch the things that matter. Um, and it, it kind of mimics like the human eye and brain because you don't care about like extra white space somewhere if someone else doesn't see it. Like, so it only ca- captures the things that people care about. We're also seeing people use um, AI. There's a company called test.ai that's doing some really interesting work in essentially like exploring a lot of different types of applications and finding commonalities and patterns between it so that for example if you give it a whole bunch of websites and train it on um, this is a a shopping cart page. And so it starts looking at all of these different examples of shopping cart pages to the point that it's able to look at any app and say, yep, that's a shopping cart page. And based on that, there could be some uh, default tests that come right out of the box on how do you test a shopping cart page. Yeah, so some really cool stuff. Um, I also do some, some talking around testing AI itself. So I've worked... uh, on projects where we use machine learning uh, for some feature. And (laughs) I'll tell you, the culture is always like, the teams are always like, oh, that's the AI feature. So we don't have to test that Yeah, exactly. And everybody everybody just thinks this just automatically works. (laughs) And so, you know, I I, I have a talk where, um, you know, I talk about that experience and how, you know, I found like this major bug in it and how no one believed me because, you know, it's just like, oh, no, this is the AI piece. Of course it works. And so it's really interesting. Like, how do how do we think about this stuff as testers? Do we just allow 
um, the team to believe that this stuff just works out of the box and that it's magic? Or how do we go about testing this stuff? Like it's much different than the traditional features. You know, these are these are not facts. These are not hard coded uh, values. These are, you know, it could it could be some range of validity here. So how do you test stuff like that? Yeah, actually, that's that's something I'm really interested in, because I, I guess what I see from practitioners, usually they say, oh, just keep an eye on your performance metrics and see if they degrade <laughs> over time and maybe retrain, you know, try again. Right. Maybe they get better, <laughs> you know, but it's not like fail or pass. So, mm-hmm, 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 exactly. So I see that you do a lot of uh, also workshops and I guess you, you like kind of evangelizing about the testing mm-hmm. culture because, you know, it's, it's sadly necessary because people, even developers still need to be evangelized about it. And I saw that um, you started this thing called Test Automation University. Yeah. How did that come about? Like when, when did you decide, okay, enough is enough. People need to know about <laughs> this. People need to know this stuff. <laughs> So it's interesting. I um I have been speaking for a couple of years about test automation and there's just such a demand for the education for it. So I go all over the globe speaking and teaching workshops about test automation and I have to turn down like dozens of of speaking engagements every year because it's so much like it's January right now and I already have like almost 25 things planned for 2019 already um, all over the place. So people really, really are hungry for this information. And a request that I often get is, hey, we see that you're going to do this workshop over in New Zealand, but, you know, I live in the UK or whatever. So is it going to be made online? Do you have like a course or something? Mm -hmm. And I've never really had the time to develop uh, any courses um, for the content, even though I had the desire to. So about six months ago is when I left Twitter and I took a job as a, a developer advocate where I, this is now my full-time job because I was doing it so much that it was becoming a bit hard for me to manage um, doing my day job as well as the evangelism. And so now I do it full time. And so I have the time to do like courses and stuff, but there's just so much to teach and there's no way I can teach it all. And frankly, I don't know everything to be able to teach it all. And so um, that idea came about, about doing a university, a test automation university, where maybe you have someone who wants to get into this space they have no clue of how to start or what what they should even learn. I get that question so much. Like, hmm. how do I get started? What's the roadmap? What language should I learn? What tools should I be using? I don't know where to begin. So the idea behind Test Automation U is to provide like all of these courses about pretty much everything test automation and provide also recommended pathways where you can say, okay, you want to learn about API testing? Sure. Let's start here. Let's get you your foundationals. Then uh, let's get you a programming language. And then here's your tool selection and kind of guide people Hmm. on this journey. And it's amazing. Um, My company has been so very supportive um, and is sponsoring this entire initiative. Uh, So Apply Tools is providing these courses for free for anybody who wants to 
learn about it. That's really cool. I think I'm definitely going to have a look because sometimes when you want to test something specifically, the first thing I do is just Google, you know, how to best <laughs> test APIs or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to have yeah. like somewhere more, more structured. Right. And like I said, it's not just me teaching. So I've recruited like a whole bunch of thought leaders in the space, people who we know and trust and know what they're talking about, <laughs> know what they're doing. And so it's really an honor to be able to learn, for example, API testing from someone who is a world-renowned API tester. You know, it's like, oh, wow, I get to take this course from this person for free. That's amazing. That's cool. And it's quite a unique approach because I haven't heard of focus, you know, a university or like course focused on test automation. It feels like it's something that it's a little bit of a taboo that, every developer should already know. So they kind of fake that. Yeah, of course I know testing. <laughs> of course I do. But then everyone's like, how do I Googling? How do I do right. that? <laughs> That's true. And that's unfair that we expect <laughs> people to know this. It's not something you got taught in school, you know, yeah. there were no courses on this. And I've seen some developers who have, you know, they've tweeted out or something like, listen, I don't know anything about testing. I don't know where to start. Help me, please. And, you know, it's like, Thank you. Be honest. And, you know, we can help. And, you know, I, you think like some of these companies, like, oh, they must have their acts together. Like when I worked at Twitter, but those Twitter developers, what I will say is that they were able to admit <laughs> when they didn't know <laughs> something and they, they would come to me and say, Angie, we are making your job harder. Help us to make the app more testable for you. And, you know, what can we do to make this better? How can we contribute tests and things like this? So that was really cool. I think this is likely to change the industry over time as well, because especially for newcomers to, to the industry, when they join a job, they learn through the culture that's there, right? So they say, okay, basically they learn to hack things really quickly and, you know, meet deadlines. And then when they ask about, oh, what about testing? I heard about testing. And people are like, yeah, we don't have time for that. So just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they actually never get the experience. And then we, you know, yeah. we grow up and then it's like, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience in testing. So Right, right. Or you've done, you like once you complete as a developer, when you complete something and you're convinced that it works, you feel like you're done with that. Like you're yeah. ready to move on to the next challenge. So to then write like a suite of tests, it's like, oh gosh, I just want to be done with this feature, you know? Um, and there's some models like TDD, you know, well, oh, you should write your test before. And even that people are like, ah, I just want to get into the feature. You know, I just want to get this knocked out. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So um, you mentioned your work at Twitter and I wonder how, you know, how do you go about testing Twitter? I mean, it's a massive platform and at a large scale. So I don't know how the setup is. How many people are involved in testing at Twitter? Oh my goodness. So... I, I when I went to Twitter, uh, I went there because I, you know, I wanted to work on something fun and exciting, and it was definitely that. But I underestimated the scope of Twitter, so I used Twitter, and you know, like all the time. And so to me, it was just at that time, 140 characters, you know, like yeah. <laughs> how hard could it be? Like you put a tweet, you click this button, it's, you know, it's there. Maybe you search, you know, a little bit, whatever. But I got there and it's just it's a massive application, like not only 
the Twitter that we all know and love, but you know, there's a whole, there's whole other platforms like this, the live streaming. And then mm. there's like the monetization parts of the uh, ads and, and things like this. So it's a whole lot that goes into it. And there was not a big test team there. Surprisingly, um, mm. Twitter, you know, started as a startup. And so, you know, a lot of startups don't include testing as one of the, you know, roles yeah. that they're hiring for, <laughs> you know. And so um, the way that testing even came to be at Twitter was that they acquired a company that had testers. And then they got a taste of this whole testing thing. It was hmm. like, wow, this is pretty cool. Like people can actually help us <laughs> make quality yeah. features like this is pretty nice. And so, um, so, you know, they hired a few more testers, but there wasn't a lot. There was like 30 of us max and half was doing manual testing, half doing automation. And that was to, you know, a couple of thousand of developers. And so, it became like testing as a service at, at Twitter. Like we were not thought of as second class as, at all, because if you wanted a tester or someone to do test automation for you, you would basically have to go and beg the <laughs> QA director. Like, oh my God, can we have a tester? And the director would be like, oh, let's see, you know, let's see how important your feature is. And and they would decide on if you get to have this service or not. Wow. <laughs> right? And so if you were lucky enough to have uh, someone to do test automation on your team, then, oh boy, you better treat them right, you know? Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting culture uh there with with testing and test automation uh, it's very different than what i've seen uh in the wild <laughs> yeah know, like... me too this was a first for me <laughs> that's cool i i wonder at such a large scale and you know twitter has, be has become central to a lot of things like one of them is politics you know people do politics on twitter um people i don't know communicate make friends on on it but i would say it's pretty mm -hmm. critical like if twitter goes down i'm sure a lot of things can happen or like can stop happening that should be happening oh yeah so i think when when a company reaches that kind of scale and and being central in so many parts of people's lives do people become a little bit more paranoid about the code they're shipping and do you think that gives a little bit more weight to testing and quality assurance yeah i do um and so the developers themselves they have no choice but to adopt a quality mindset you know hmm. they know that the testing resources are limited and everything shouldn't be put on a tester quite frankly like quality is everyone's responsibility and so that that company has no choice but to adopt that that mentality so it was really great working with those developers because they got it you know it wasn't something that was just thrown over the wall mm -hmm. to a tester to try to test everything in every possible scenario it's very much so a collaborative effort to make sure that the things that we are shipping are of high quality. Hmm. There's like entire governments that like relies on Twitter, like for everything to vote and to order food and everything yeah. like that this is very much so a part of their culture. So for Twitter to like break or go down, is just unacceptable. Yeah. It's quite scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of part of the internet going down. It's like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? Yeah. So also I've seen 
I've seen that you you're an inventor. I mean, I've never met an inventor before, mm -hmm. so I'm really I'm really uh, shocked. Like because when you think of an inventor, you think, oh yeah, maybe 200 years ago, of course you could invent things. You know, <laughs> people just thought all day long and hard and invented something. But nowadays, inventing it's uh, it seems really hard. And and you have quite a lot of patented inventions, as I, as I understand. I would mm -hmm. really like to know how do you get how did you get into inventing and and what drives you to do it. So, um, yeah, I have 25 patents and the way that I got started was when I was working at IBM, IBM every year is the leader, <laughs> the leading company with the number of patents that, um, they have issued or granted to them. Mm. And so it's very much so a part of the culture there to be innovative, to um, think outside of the box. And so when I was there, um, I saw a woman uh, down the hall and she had a plaque on her wall that was for one of her patents. And uh, I was just like mesmerized by this, you know, it's like, hmm. wow, what is this? And she told me all about it. She kind of took me under her wing and uh, we developed uh, one together. And then I just kind of became addicted to, wow. to it. But it, I found that it's uh, not that far of a jump from my mindset as a tester. Because my mindset as a tester, I am looking at problems all the time, right? I'm able to recognize problems. Now, inventing is a small leap from that where you not only recognize the problem, but you ask yourself, why is this a problem? And how can you go about solving it? And so coming up with a solution to a problem is enough for an invention, right? And so you, it's, it, and it could be everyday things. I'll give an example. Like one time I was in the grocery store and, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you are ready to check out, you look at all of the lines and you go and you pick which line you need to go in, right? Yeah. And so you say, huh, which one of these is going to be quicker? And what do you do? You always pick the wrong line. Yeah. Whichever line you get in, that's the one that's going to be backed up or take longer for whatever reason. And so as an inventor, I would, you know, have that frustrating moment of, oh, I picked the wrong line. But then you just take that leap to say, okay, how could I solve this problem? And then you just start thinking of what would be the solution to something like this. So I invented a way that you can, uh, a system can basically look at everyone who's in line, look at everything that's in their cart, look at their shopping habits. Like, are they going to get up here and ask the cashier to go get some cigarettes from behind the counter or, you know, something like wow. that, which will take a little longer? Or are they prone to use like a bunch of coupons? And so that's going to take longer. Or are they going to write a check? That's going to take longer. So looking at their frequent habits, looking at what they have in their cart, is it a bunch of produce where the cashier is going to have to look up codes and combining all of that together to come up with an estimated wait time for each of these cues mm. so that you can visually show that and people can see, okay, this cue is looking like it's going to be five minutes, whereas this one has less people, but that one's looking like 15 minutes. So I'm going to go in the five minute one. I wonder how do you even go about solving that? Like, <laughs> um, I mean, identifying the problem is already something quite 
remarkable. Most people just go about their lives and just kind of working around all the problems. Right. <laughs> right. So you just take a moment and say, like, why is this a problem and how could it be solved? And I didn't have to build that solution. Hmm. All I needed to do was outline technically how it could be solved. So what technologies would I use? I had to like explicitly state that, like, oh, you can use this, you can use this and you combine these two together and this will give you this portion of the algorithm. And then, you know, you just specify like a blueprint hmm. basically of how someone could build this. And that's enough for the patent. Wow. And you kind of got started this way and kept kept going up to 25. Yeah, so I'm always frustrated, you know. Wow. <laughs> so I always have problems. So the, the 25 are the ones that were actually granted. Mm. I've submitted like a bunch more that uh, have not been granted. Like maybe they were rejected based on like prior art. Like, oh, mm -hmm. someone's already solved this or it's too close to this other solution or some of them are like still sitting there waiting, in, in, especially in the U.S. It takes years. Like I may mm. have something that I submit um, to the patent office and it won't get issued or granted until like nine years later. Wow. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, here, here's your patent issue. It's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, wow. That kind, that kind of defeats the purpose of, <laughs> I mean, the, the whole idea with patenting is like, you, you know, you do a bunch of development and upfront costs, and then you get some leeway to to exploit or to make something out of it, a business maybe out of it for some time. Right, right. Uh, but if you, right. it takes nine years, it's like, okay, I did already all this development and now I have to put even more money yeah. to make a business and everyone can copy it. So, <laughs> Well, you have some some rights with it being like when it, when you submit mm. it, it's still publicly available. So it's everyone can see that it's under review and you have some rights with that as well. I see Interesting. And and the, the kind of uh, inventions you do are mostly about like optimizing processes that happen currently or some of them are about software, some of them. Yeah, all of them are like software related. Some of them are around like development processes, uh, around like smarter planet stuff, like, you know, virtual worlds. Hmm. Um, collaboration software. So I've done a lot with like email and like social media and stuff like that. And I think one thing that maybe is some, someone has an idea in their home, like, oh yeah, maybe we could solve this problem this way. But then the first thing thought they have is like, I've surely someone's done it. Yeah. <laughs> but you go ahead and you do it and you try it and, and then you submit it. And you know, if someone's done it, fair enough. Right. It gets rejected, but but you go through the whole process of designing the, the invention, which is something that, you know, people from their sofa they're like oh whatever yeah 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 and I always do a quick search myself before you know I invest mm. the time and actually designing it so you know I might take 30 minutes to do a thorough search um and you know Google has like a whole patent website so you can look on their mm. patent website and search you can look in like um educational literature and stuff like that because some of these things are concepts they might not be realized yet but there are they are they have been thought about mm. so if someone's even thought about it and published it somewhere then no go <laughs> cool so i have some wrap-up questions that are not necessarily related to to tech or testing but i think it's good to see like another side of of our speakers and one of them is i mean you being from new orleans i think you'll definitely have more than one answer but it's your favorite dish my favorite dish would have to be 
macaroni and cheese. I love mac and cheese, but I'm a real snob about it. So it has to be done perfectly. I, I like, I don't want anything out of the box. I don't want any cheap cheeses. Like it has to be gourmet almost. You know? <laughs> it's funny. Like uh, people tweet me when they see like horrible macaroni dishes, like, Oh, Angie, look at this. You're going to have a heart attack looking at this. <laughs> Um, so also I would like to know about the most thrilling experience of your life. Oh goodness. So I went to Jamaica last summer for like to speak at some company and the CEO of the company, uh, said, Oh, let's go to the waterfalls. And she made it, you know, like it was just going to be some nice little fun day in the park. And so I'm thinking, Oh yeah, cool. I'll get some nice Instagram pictures and stuff. (laughs) And we got there and it was just like, Oh my God, you were jumping off of like cliffs into the water and climbing, you know, these, these hills and definitely nothing that I would ever opt in to do. Like, I'm just not an adventurous person at all. Hmm. I thought I would just kind of kick my feet in the water, but it was, it was very thrilling. (laughs) And you all might be listening, thinking, oh, that's nothing. But for me, that was just like, Oh my God, I'm going to die today. Yeah, especially, <laughs> especially you didn't even sign up for it. It's like kind of, you thought, oh yeah. I know. <laughs> I went with like my cute little sunglasses wow. and, you know, I, you know, I was not expecting that at all, but it was, it was, it was intense. In retrospect, do you think it was, it was uh, worth it? I guess to like, just put something exciting so I I could answer this question, you know. <laughs> 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 but other than that, like I, I, I wouldn't mind if I skipped it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and um, if you have a, a book of or or a couple of books you'd like to recommend to our listeners, oh, I really like this book. It just came out uh, last year. It's called Test Automation Journeys, hmm. and uh, it talks about different patterns in test automation, which I think is really interesting, especially for developers who are used to looking at code patterns and things. And there's something really different about the ones in test automation. And this book, what I really love is that it's told in a story form. So there's this team and uh, it talks about like some of the issues Hmm. that they're facing as a team. And so then they start exploring these different patterns and figuring out like which ones apply to the problem that they're seeing. So I really, really like this book. Interesting. I've never seen uh, a book about software told in a, in a story form. I think that that's a new format to explore. I know. Yes. And uh, let me get you the name and the author. So I make sure I say it. it's called A Journey Through Test Automation Patterns. And it's by Soretta Gamba and Dorothy Graham. But yeah, I really like that book. And yeah, I have one last question, actually, that I forgot to ask you. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, Cucumber and Gherkin and this kind of technology? <laughs> because in the software world, there's like... Uh, it's almost divided. Like some people say, no, don't use it. You know, uh, business people don't read tests. You know, it's so funny that you asked that. But yeah, it's such a controversial topic. Um, I do like a couple of trainings on that. Like I have a couple of blog posts and a couple of like video tutorials on it. But I try not to do too much. Someone just asked me like, oh, could you do some BDD stuff with us? And I was like, 
you know, I just did a BDD thing last week and I think I'm at my quota for the year because <laughs> I try not to become a part of this mm. BDD community because there's just, oh my God, there's just so much division there. Um, and I call them the BDD purists. Um, <laughs> these are the people that are always telling you like, oh no, you're not supposed to be doing it like this. It's not even made for testing. It's certainly not made for test automation. That's not the purpose. And I get that. I get that the intention behind it was more a collaborative way to come up with, um, you know, the the features and, mm-hmm. and define like the scenarios around those features. I totally understand that. But just like, any tool or any technology, people use it the way that they want to use yeah. it and what works for them. And I don't think that we should be policing how people do it. You can specify, here's the tool, here's how it's supposed to be used. And if people use it in other different ways and it works for them, like, who are we to judge them, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, sometimes it feels like some people kind of took the profit role of BDD and they say, no, 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 I've talked to God, okay? <laughs> BDD is this. No, 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 you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like that. Yeah, that is so wrong. That is not BDD. And, you know, it's just like, oh, my goodness. So when I teach, you know, I, I make sure I start off with this is how it's intended to be used. And I try to help people not veer off into, like, problem spaces you know like where your feature file is is dozens and dozens of lines long or you know maybe uh your code is not glued properly and you can't reuse steps and things like that so I try I try to teach some best practices but I I'm also a realist you know a lot of times the people who you see preaching they're not really practitioners yeah. they're consultants uh you know and uh, an evangelist and so they are talking from a theoretical perspective where when you're in the trenches <laughs> yeah. sometimes you have to tweak some of this stuff to get it to what you need it to be for your environment. And so I try to speak from that perspective. Yeah, that's that's so right. <laughs> so thank you so much for, for doing this, Angie. It's, it's been really nice. Uh, I myself have learned a lot about testing. I've always been kind of interested, timidly interested in testing and kind of adapt my way a little bit. But I live with a renewed excitement, I think. And a lot of our <laughs> listeners will as well. I think they will all Wonderful. rush to test out a machine university when no one's uh, looking. looking. And... <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to meeting you in person in September. Yep. See you there. See you there, Angie. Bye. All right. And to our listeners, I hope you've all enjoyed this episode. If you want to see Angie on stage and many other great speakers, you can go to fullsackfest.com. Until next time, and see you all in September, 